The following sermon is a ministry of Hilton Head Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at hiltonheadpca.com. We're continuing in our sermon series on the Apostles' Creed. Uh, We've completed the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, and now, last week and this week, we're looking at the community that the work of this triune God in space and time has created. We're looking at the church, and last week, Matt preached from Ephesians chapter 2 about one holy Catholic church, Uh, and and he teased out what that means, that the church is holy, that she is set apart, uh, that she's distinct from the rest of the world, that she's consecrated for a specific purpose. She's holy, and she's Catholic, and and in the creed, that's an adjective, not a noun. So it's not the holy Roman Catholic church, but it's a descriptor of the unified nature of the church, one holy Catholic or universal church. And that church is united under Christ as our head, that he provides the direction, he provides uh, the sustenance and and the, the nourishment for the church. And this week might at first seem to be redundant, because we're still going to talk about the church. Uh, isn't, you know, isn't communion of saints just another way to say holy Catholic church? Well, let me suggest a way that you can distinguish these two in your mind this morning. What Matt talked about last week was the big C church, the capital C church, uh, that all believers at all times from any century, from any continent, from any age, race, socioeconomic status, any believer, past, present, and future, is caught up in this big C church. It's one unified body. This morning, as we consider the communion of saints, we're talking about this church, the little C church, that you people gathered together, communing together. So we're talking about the the particular localized space and time expression of that universal church. That's what we are talking about when we talk about the communion of saints. It's those believers that we rub shoulders with and, and sit beside week after week. So with that in mind, follow along with me as I read John chapter 13, starting in verse 34. Just two verses this morning. Jesus says to his disciples, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Let's pray. Heavenly Fathers, we open this text this morning as we look at the communion of saints and what it means to experience your love and and practice love together and the witness that that love has to a watching world. We pray that you would open this text to our eyes, give us eyes to see and ears to hear you and the ways that you have loved us, the ways you call us to love one another. Do this, we pray, for we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. So as I read that passage and said, you know, we're talking about this passage in connection with communion of the saints, some of you might think I grabbed the wrong sermon notes this morning. Because communion and saints and, and maybe even the word of don't show up in the passage that I just read. So what business do I have talking about communion of saints from John 13, 34 to 35? Well, we need to do a little defining this morning before we dive in. Uh, two words that we need to look at, because I think we all have a pretty good grasp of of, so I'm going to leave that undefined. Uh, But I want to talk about saints for a minute. Uh, If you come from a Roman Catholic background, you might be familiar with saints. Uh, Someone who has lived such a virtuous life, such a holy life, that we exalt them to uh, a higher honored status. We can now pray to them and they can give merit. So we have people like St. Francis of Assisi or St. Patrick uh, from Ireland. Uh, This is not what the confession talks about when it talks about saints. 
It also doesn't talk about the way that we call one another saints. You know, someone does something really nice to you, really kind to you, helps you out a lot. So maybe students, you forget your lunch or your gym bag at home, but your mom brings it to school halfway through the day and say, Mom, you're such a saint. What can I get you for Mother's Day? Or, or, or wives, maybe you have just a terrible, terrible day and your husband knows about it. And on the way, he picks up flowers and a pizza. And he comes to the door and you say, oh, honey, sweetie, you're such a saint. That's how you talk to one another, right? Uh, honey, dear, you're, you're such a saint. Um, in both of these cases, whether it's that particular action or the Roman Catholic version of just an, an overwhelmingly virtuous life, when we call people saints in this way, we're pointing to something that they are doing. We're saying, I, I see what you're doing, it's good, and I want to honor that. The Bible doesn't talk about saints that way. What the Bible points to when it says something about a saint is something that has been done to that person. In the, in the Greek of the New Testament, the word that we get saint from is the same word that we get holy from. And so we said earlier that holy means set apart. So when Paul writes this letter to the Ephesians and he opens it saying, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus, he's not talking about their moral character. He's talking about God's action in their life, setting them apart for a particular purpose, for a particular identity. Literally what he says is, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the holy who are in Ephesus. And he doesn't go on to distinguish, and by that I mean Jim, John, James, and Jed. No, he's just, this is the church. You guys are all the set-apart ones. So when we're talking about communion of the saints, we're not talking about, like, the top 10% of Christians. We're talking about every single person in this room who has claimed Christ as their own and who follows him. You are called a saint. And then communion. When we talk about communion, this is even a little harder to pin down because there's no one-to-one correlation from the, the New Testament Greek to our own English. If you actually do a word search uh, on communion for the ESV, you come up with nothing. If you do it for the King James Version, you come up with the Lord's Supper passages, but that's it. Uh, and the, the creed isn't talking about the Lord's Supper here. It'd be weird for them to talk about the Lord's Supper, but not baptism. And so we don't think that it's talking about that. It's talking about union, uh, and it's talking about, in short, love. There are several words and concepts that contribute to this throughout the New Testament. It's fellowship, it's sharing, it's honoring, it's receiving, uh, it's joint ownership at times. Uh, If you're familiar with the word koinonia, that very much captures the idea of communion. It's this this fellowship and partnership uh, and participation together. So when we talk about the communion of saints, we're talking about the presence and the experience of love within the body of those who God has set apart for himself in a particular place, at a particular time. When we talk about the communion of saints, we're talking about the love that you guys have for you guys. That's what the communion of saints is, the, the love that is, is present and experienced within the body of Christ, within those who he has made holy. In other words, the love the church has for her own members. And in this passage, we'll see three aspects of this communion of the saints, that it's based on an experience that we already have, that it's to be worked out and practiced in our lives, and that this communion of saints is a powerful witness to a watching world. The experience of love, the practice of love, and the witness of love are our three points this morning. So first, the experience of love. In verse 34, Jesus gives a new commandment. Love one another. Before he says anything else, before he gives them any chance at misunderstanding, because we know the disciples misunderstand almost everything that Jesus said, He says, love one another. Now, now wait a minute. 
as I have loved you, love one another. He roots their love for one another in the fact that he has already loved them, that they have already experienced his love. Because Jesus knows that there is no chance for them to love one another unless they have been loved by him. And this is love, John says, other places. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. In other places, he says, let us love one another as God in Christ has loved us. Jesus knows that the disciples and and we have no chance at loving one another unless we first see that we have been loved by God. And we have been loved by God. And so we're called to love one another. You you all, I'm sure, know the experience of, of trying to love and be patient and deal with someone who's not a believer. It's difficult because there's not the love of Christ in them. It's so much easier to love a fellow believer who has been loved by Christ, who knows what that experience is. Without Christ loving us first, our love falls woefully short. But, but Jesus also knows that not only do they have no chance at loving one another without his love, they have no model for loving one another without his love. Because we want to define what love is, right? We, we want to set the bar where we want to set the bar so that we can achieve the bar. And so we'll say things like, love is supporting someone no matter what. Or love is telling someone they are wrong, never telling someone that they are wrong. Or love is never having to say you're sorry. It's Mother's Day, so I had to get a chick flick quote in there somewhere. Love is never having to say you're sorry. And th- but this is not, that's not right, by the way. Um, this is not the love that Jesus has modeled for them. Jesus' love for the disciples, we'd have to look at all four Gospels in totality to see it all, but I think John wants us to see two aspects of Jesus' love in this passage this morning, and, and it's what comes right before and what comes right after this passage. At the beginning of chapter 13, uh, John makes an interesting comment. Uh, he's, he's talking about the feast of the Passover, and Jesus knows that it's almost time for him to go to the cross. Uh, he says he, he loved his own who were in the world, and he loved them to the end. So Jesus has loved them to the end, and this is what that looked like, according to John. Look at 13, verse 2. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments, and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin, and began to wash the disciples' feet, and to wipe them with the towel that was around, that was wrapped around him. Jesus' love for the disciples is evidenced, is modeled for us in active service. Foot washing is not a pleasant experience. Um, I, I grew up in a church that practiced foot washing every once in a while, and it was a weird experience for a 10-year-old uh, because feet are gross. They're stinky. They have weird calluses and stubby little pinky toes that, and like weird nasty toenails. And those are our feet, right? I mean, those are 21st century feet. Imagine 1st century feet where they're not wearing socks and closed-toed shoes. They're walking around with their feet just exposed to the elements and walking everywhere, not on paved roads or tabby sidewalks, but on dirt roads that farm animals use as roads as well. Like, their feet would have been disgusting, And picture Jesus, after dinner, gathered with the disciples, wrapping a towel around his waist, bending down in front of them, taking these feet in his own hands and washing them, and then drying with the towel that he's using for clothes. 
I mean, this is the Son of God. This is the Savior of the world stooping down to wash the feet of poor fishermen, uh, of petty tax collectors, of people like you and like me. What does it take for us to be served by Jesus like this? Well, Peter gives us a good model as John continues. In verse 6, John continues, He came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I don't wash you, you have no share with me. So Simon Peter said to him, Lord, then not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Peter, in his usual roundabout, stubborn way, finally gets at an understanding of what Jesus is doing, that he is cleansing Peter from his sins. That's what he's picturing. And for us to be served by Jesus in this way, we need to recognize that we have sins that need to be cleansed. I had a conversation a few months ago with Thomas Joyner. Most of you guys know Thomas. He works with Young Life here in the Low Country, uh, ministering and sharing the gospel with high school students. And we were talking about the, the particular challenges and, and character of ministry in a place like this. Um, and, and one of the things he said was really insightful. He said that it's really hard to share the gospel with high school students, especially ones that don't have any needs, especially wealthy ones that just don't feel like they need anything at all. Because if you don't have a need, then Jesus isn't beautiful to you. He's not attractive to you. He, he actually doesn't have anything to offer you if you don't have any needs. And I thought, wow, that, that's really insightful. That helps me to pray for you better. Um, those poor, naive high school students who think that they've just got everything figured out. Like if they only knew what life was going to hold, they'd recognize that we have needs. But we're not that different, right? I mean, how many of us on a daily basis or, or you know, with any regularity at all say, man, I have this great need for fill in the blank. I mean, has anyone here been hungry recently and not able to do anything about it? Did anybody get rained on yesterday, not by choice, like because you didn't have shelter to go and live in? Does anybody not have someone that they can call and, and share problems with and share grief with? No, we, we all have these things. We are a relatively, we feel like we're not that needy. But until we see, like Peter, that we need not just our feet, but our hands and our head and the rest of us cleansed as well, Jesus Christ has nothing to offer us. So have you seen your need of him this morning? Have you been loved by God through the act of service of Jesus Christ? I hope that you have. I hope that you have been served by Christ in this way, and not just in this way, in the, the fuller expression, the experience of the love that God has given to us in Christ. John continues later on in the passage in verse 31, talking about after Judas has gone out, he just makes this, it seems like a throwaway comment. When, when Judas had gone out, Jesus said, now the Son of Man is glorified. Judas is leaving to betray Jesus. He's leaving to organize the, the chief priests, the scribes, the Pharisees, the city officials to come and arrest Jesus. And it's like Jesus' attitude is once Judas walks out the door, the, st- the pebbles have started rolling down the mountain. And they'll crash into each other, and eventually the valley below will be buried in a landslide. Once Judas leaves, the crucifixion is inevitable. And this is the chief way that Christ has loved us. This is the the primary way that we experience the love of God, his willing sacrifice for us. 
1 John 3.16 says, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. Galatians 2.20 says, The life I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Jesus himself in John 10 says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. This is the mark of true love, active service and willing sacrifice for others. Without these elements, love is shallow, love is cheap, love is easy. But with these elements, love is real and deep and powerful. And it doesn't matter how different two people are, how divided two communities may be, what history there might be between people. Where there is active service and willing sacrifice, hearts melt. When you see Christ's active service and loving sacrifice for you, your heart melts in response to the good news of the gospel. Maybe there's someone in your life that you have a grudge against and you just can't forgive. And, and you've come to a point where you hate each other and your hearts are hard as stone towards one another. Well, imagine then that you come into difficulty and this other person who hates you and you hate them for some reason starts serving you and sacrificing for you your hearts are going to melt towards one another because that is real love, and real love is powerful. And this is the love that Christ has shown us. This is the love that he has shown his disciples. And Jesus says, I have loved you. And we'd like him to stop there, right? We'd like him to stop there and say, guys, I've loved you. Isn't that awesome? Like, you know, aren't I a great Savior to have loved you like this? No, Jesus looks at them and says, I've loved you. Now you guys do that for one another. He says, practice love with one another. And this is our second point today. Again, verse 34, just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. And it's interesting that Jesus calls this commandment new. Uh, And we kind of scratch our heads at that because all through the Bible, we have the love commandment. Uh, Jesus has taught earlier in his ministry that love is the fulfillment of the law. And he's taught the golden rule, you know, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Love your neighbor as yourself. So is Jesus being forgetful here? Is he incorrect? Does he have some different definition of love in mind? Well, here's what I think the newness of the commandment is. Up to this point in Scripture, up to this point in the Bible, the love rule is to love your neighbor as yourself. It's to be given by all people to all people. It's the, it's the law of God, and so it applies to all people at all places at all times, and it's to be given, this love is to be shown to all people. Remember when the lawyer asked Jesus, who is my neighbor, and he tells the story of the Good Samaritan. Basically, he says, who is my neighbor, and Jesus says, close your eyes and point, like that's your neighbor. Anybody is your neighbor. Yes is your neighbor. So the, the love rule is for us to love anyone as we love ourselves. That's up to this point in Scripture, the love rule. Now Jesus gives a different, a higher standard. He doesn't do away with that old one because it's still God's law, but he says to the disciples, you guys, the church, because that's basically what the 11 are right now. They're the first church. You guys, within this new community that I am creating by my death and resurrection, for you guys, the standard of love is not your love for yourself because that's broken. That's sinful at times. We're too easy on ourselves at times. We're too hard on ourselves at times. Sometimes we're too quick to forgive. Sometimes we we remember things too long. We don't love ourselves perfectly. Jesus says, your measure of love for one another is not your love for yourself, but my love for you. That's why it's new. And that's a tall order, right? Because 
if I only had to love you like I love myself, that would be a lot easier. I mean, it's still difficult for us to do, but it'd be a lot easier than me to love you or you to love me as Christ has loved us. And we could use some direction on that. We could use a little bit of guidance because active service and willing sacrifice sound good, but there's not a lot of meat there. You know, there's not a lot of specificity. But thankfully, the rest of the New Testament is full of instructions and commands about what this looks like day to day for us to love one another. Listen to some of these instructions. Mark chapter 9, be at peace with one another. John 13, wash one another's feet. Romans 10, outdo one another in showing honor. Romans 12, live in harmony with one another. Romans 15, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. 2 Corinthians 13, aim for restoration, comfort one another, agree with one another, live in peace. Galatians 5, do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Galatians 6, bear one another's burdens. Ephesians 4, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Ephesians 5, submit to one another. Colossians 3, do not lie to one another. Colossians 3, again, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another. 1 Thessalonians, encourage one another and build one another up. Hebrews 3, exhort one another. Hebrews 10, stir up one another to love and good works. James 4, do not speak evil against one another. James 5, do not grumble against one another. Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another. 1 Peter 4, show hospitality to one another. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another. My favorite, especially as a high school boy, was 2 Corinthians 13, 12. Greet one another with a holy kiss. I save that for the end to, to lighten it a little bit because this is a tall order. This is a lot for us to take in. This is a lot for us to do for one another. Why does the Bible spend so much time fleshing out what it means for us to love one another? Well, in the front of your bulletin, there's a quote from Andreas Kostenberger talking about this passage, and it's worth your consideration and chewing on it a little bit this afternoon. Um, This rule of self-sacrificial, self-giving, selfless love, this this love that Christ has modeled for us, this self-sacrificial, self-giving, selfless love, a unique quality of love inspired by Jesus' own love for the disciples, will serve as the foundational ethic for the new messianic community. So whether the question is, what does it mean to follow God? The answer is love. Or what does it mean to be a Christian? The answer is love. How should I treat my neighbor? Love. How should I treat my wife? Love. How should I treat my husband? Love is the foundational ethic. Everything else we do in the Christian life is an outworking of love that Christ has shown to us and modeled for us and that we now are called to give and share with one another. I want us to consider who Jesus is talking to for a second, because this can sound really hard for us to do, because we know, or kind of know one another, and we know that there are some differences in this room. There are a lot of similarities, but there are also some differences. But consider who the disciples, who the 11 left in this room are. You know that Peter and Andrew were fishermen. They were poor, they were day laborers, you know, they, they didn't have a lot saved up. Their ability to eat was contingent on their ability to fish. And these poor brothers are called to love James and John, who were wealthier brothers. They came from means. They had some money in the bank, or, or whatever the equivalent of, of that was in that time. 
These are the ones who came to Jesus and said, hey, when you come into your own, when you come into power, can we sit at your right and your left? We're, we're well-to-do. We know how things work. We can help you run the new heavens and new earth. The, the proud rich are called to love the poor, and the poor are called to love the rich, even within the disciples here. I, I think there's an even bigger division, though, because in this group of people are two men who would have been on polar opposites of the political spectrum. Because we have Simon the Zealot, and we you know, kind of know generally what a zealot is. It's someone who's enthusiastic and maybe angrily enthusiastic about something. But in the first century, the zealots were a religious sect that, that bordered on terrorists. They were absolutely dedicated to and working towards and praying for and hoping for the collapse of the Roman Empire. Because the Roman Empire, the world empire at this time, is ruling over the people of God, and the zealots thought that no one should rule over the people of God except the people of God, and they felt called to destroy Rome. So you have Simon the Zealot and Matthew the tax collector. Matthew is employed by Rome to collect taxes for Rome from the Jewish people. You have Simon who wants to annihilate Rome, and Matthew who gets a paycheck from Rome. And Jesus looks at them and says, you two love one another as I have loved you. We are not more divided than this. There are differences in here to be sure, but they are not this severe. We can do this. And God has given us a gift, a useful tool that helps us in doing this together. And that tool, that gift, is church membership. Now, I know that as soon as I say that, some of you are already gone, right? Either I'm already a member, so I don't have to listen, or membership, really? Like, it's 2017, we don't do that anymore, that's so passe. Why do I need to bother with membership? And I want to tell you, you're right. Membership these days is passe. It's, it's a foreign concept to many people. Many churches are doing away with it altogether. But I want you to bear with me for just a couple minutes as I try and explain why you have that reaction when it comes to membership and why I think that membership is not just commanded by Scripture but is a gift to us. See, we tend to view church membership as a burden. It's actually, I think, a gift. And so I, I want to talk about this for a little bit. Why do you have that reaction that, really, membership? Do I need to do that when you hear me say church membership? I think it's because our cultural understanding of what love is has been warped. There are at least four areas that, that this happens in uh, that I want to talk about just briefly. Individualism, consumerism, commitment phobia, and skepticism. How do all of these things warp our concept of love as shown in the Bible, as modeled by Christ? Well, first, individualism. When the individual reigns, when I, and, and the most important thing as I look out at the world, when the individual reigns, self-expression and self-fulfillment become the barometer of love. The, the people, the, the places, the things, the churches that I love are the ones who I feel most fulfilled by and with, and the ones with whom I'm able to be my most authentic self, whatever that means. In other words, we're loving not other people or other institutions or other things. We're loving the way that those things make us feel. So that love becomes selfish, really. So we evaluate a worship service as good, not when the word is faithfully sung and preached and read and prayed, but when we feel like we've been able to express our feelings for God well, when we feel fulfilled after having gone. We judge what is good by how it makes us feel, not by the truth of the matter. 
So there's individualism. Consumerism also warps our understanding of love because the, the thought of consumerism is I can find the perfect fill in the blank. There are so many options out there for me that I should be able to find the perfect car, the perfect cut for my jeans, the, the perfect breakfast cereal that has just the right amount of fiber and sweetness and doesn't dissolve in my milk too quick or make it too sugary. I can find the perfect church. Our fear of buyer's remorse says that you know, the return policy is just as important as the product itself. Because what if I don't like what I've gotten? So consumerism warps our understanding of love to focus on the object and finding the per- perfect object rather than loving something imperfect and practicing the discipline of love. Commitment phobia warps our understanding of love. FOMO, or fear of missing out, is a brand new psychological term in our overly connected age. Because we can be omniscient, right? We can know everything that's going on on the island right now. And so I don't want to commit to hang out with these people, or I don't want to commit to spending time with you when they might call. And so we don't commit to anything. And this bleeds over into the church. This makes love about what's beneficial to me and what I think will most fulfill my felt needs. And then skepticism. We question motives, truth claims, institutions, everything. And we have good reason for this because we've seen so many of them fail in so many different ways. But what that happens when it comes to love is we ask the question, well, what does it mean to love somebody? We say, I don't don't know. Figure it out for yourself. Do what feels right. Skepticism removes judgment from love and says that we should expect unconditional acceptance no matter what. And when we redefine love this way, of course church membership seems crazy because it violates our sense of individualism. It it takes away the options of consumerism and and easy commitments. And why would we commit to someone someone or some church when we're not sure if it's absolutely true? The net effect is that we become highly convinced of our own ability to make wise choices about our spiritual condition. So this, this is how our, our understanding of love has been, has been warped. We think that we can do it on our own. The individual reigns, and we're wise enough to know what we need in our spiritual life. And yet I know of no better guide for experiencing the full life that's found in Christ, for, for participating in the communion of saints than church membership. Because when you join a church, when you say, I am here, and I'm going to be here every week, and I'm going to see you every week, and I'm going to get to know you, and worship with you, and love you, and encourage you, when you join a church, you are combating these cultural winds that blow into our lives. You're combating the individualism that, 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 that seeks to tear us away from one another. And you're saying, love is not what makes me feel validated, or most fulfilled, or what allows me to express myself. Love is actually my denial of those things for your good. And so I'm going to join a church. I'm going to covenant to give up of my own benefit for you. You're attacking the ideal of consumerism and saying, I will not dwell on, on my perceived flaws of this church. I will focus on loving her as she is. You're saying, I, I know that I will never find a perfect church. And even if I did, they wouldn't let me join because it wouldn't be perfect anymore. So when you covenant to join a church, you're saying, I'm going to love this church as I find her and try and make her even more beautiful. We're we're attacking the the notion of this fear of commitment. Yes, 
Something that looks better may come along. Some new church may pop up across the street that has an even better kids' ministry, an even better worship. But it's better for me to know and to be known by the people in this room consistently and over time than to be perpetually unknown no matter how good the service is, no matter how skillful the preacher is, no matter how, how inspiring the music is. It's better for me to be known and skepticism. I'm giving up my demand that I be accepted and improved no matter what because I know my heart, I know my sin tendency, and I know my blindness to those things. And so I'm covenanting with other people to have them speak into my life and open the word of God to me. In short, when we join with a church in membership, we're creating the space and we're entering into a space where obedience to the one another's is possible. You cannot obey that list of one another's in the, in the scripture unless there's some, some consistency in our relationships. Because I can't bear your burdens and you can't bear my burdens if I only see you once every other month. I can't speak into your life and encourage you if I don't know you and if I don't know what you're struggling with at this time or what you're hoping for. I can't pray for you if I don't know you. We can't obey the one another's of the New Testament without the space that church membership provides. When we join with the church and membership, we're creating and entering into a space where we're actually able to live out Christ's command to love one another. So if you're just visiting this week from out of town for vacation or a Mother's Day trip, and you're not a member of your church back home, when you get back home, call your pastor and say, what do I need to do to join this church? Not only will he be encouraged, I think it'd be a great way for you to obey the word of God and and, and enter into and covenant with that church to fulfill this love one another command. And if this is your church, if you've been here for three weeks or three months or three years and you haven't joined, why not? We're we're inviting you to come in and join with us as we together seek to obey Christ's command for us to love one another. And there's a really easy way that you can do that. If you see, you look at the back page of your bulletin, you'll see that we have an inquirers class coming up. Uh, Sunday mornings during the first service in Elderton Hall for all four weeks of June, we're going to have an inquirers class. We usually do this over a weekend, but over the summers we're going to do Sundays. And the elders will teach on the story of Hilton Head Prez, how we came to existence, uh, vision and values of the church, and some of our uh, beliefs about scripture, about God's sovereignty, about salvation. And you'll have a chance to ask questions and to meet other people who are considering joining the church. I would encourage you to do that. And, and I just want to point out um, that I don't have a horse in this race. Like, I don't get any kind of pep or boost in saying, it's like, yeah, 100 people joined the church that I was a part of because we're leaving next week. And, so, and, and I still think that you should go to the new members class. I think membership in the church is that important for your spiritual health, for your spiritual growth, that even though we're leaving, I still think that you should go to the new members class. So we have the experience of love, this active service and willing sacrifice that Christ has given to us and, and that models for us how we practice our love for one another, that's fleshed out in the New Testament and given space for in church membership. But Christ isn't done, and this is our last point this morning, the witness of love. Look at verse 35. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. So Christ tells the disciples that their love for one another, he tells this first church that their love for one another is proof that they have been loved by them, proof of the reality of their faith, proof of the genuineness of their conversion, 
But notice it's not proof to them. It's not an assurance of faith kind of proof. It's the proof of witness to a watching world. He says, this is proof not to you, but to everyone else that, you, that I have loved you, that I'm real, that, and that my love has been set upon you. So if you're not a believer here today, I want you to recognize something in what Jesus says. He gives you permission to judge this church. He says, unbeliever, outsider, look at this church, and you can judge whether or not they're genuine, whether or not they're authentic, whether or not they're, they're real, and here's your measuring stick. Do they love one another? Do they love one another? But if they do, the reason for that is because I have loved them. And Jesus says, I can set my love on you as well. If you are a believer today, do you recognize how powerful the witness of love is? This has been the primary evangelistic method of the church, is a community so bent on loving one another with a love that is undeniably otherworldly, because I know you, and I know you don't have this kind of love inside of you. It has to be from someone else. It has to be from God. But a community so bent on loving one another in this way that outsiders see it, marvel at it, and eventually come to taste and enjoy it, to participate in it. John, in 1 John, says that no one has ever seen God. But if we love one another... God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. No one has ever seen God, John says, and we know this is true. You know, we see this other places in the Bible. Moses asked to see God, and God says, no, it'll kill you. And John picks up on that. No one has ever seen God. But if we love one another the way Christ has loved us, God becomes visible in our union, in our communion. That's incredible that the invisible God reigning in heaven is visible on earth in our love for one another. Do you realize how powerful this witness can be? There's no other message, no other conclusion, no other exhortation that I'd rather leave you with than this. Love one another. And I know that you can do this because you have loved us well. You have loved me and Trish and our daughter Sophie very well over the last three years. We, we are sad. We're excited to leave and we're sad to go. It's this really weird emotional place to be uh, because we have come to love you and we have experienced the love of God for us through you. And so we know that you can do this because we've experienced it for ourselves. Now please, love one another like you have loved us. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, We thank you for the love that you have shown to us. We're humbled by the love that you have shown to us, that you pour out on us. Your active service and your willing sacrifice for us. And Father, we're thankful and and intimidated to hear the command then to turn and love one another in that way. Father, we're overwhelmed as we hear what that looks like in the New Testament and, and what that takes. But Father, I pray that you would give us a vision of what that can do for our neighbors, what that can do for our communities as we love one another and become God-made visible through our love for one another. Father, would you help us to do that? Help us to keep our eyes fixed on Christ and see his love for us and to share that love with one another. Do this, we pray, for we ask it in Christ's name. Amen.